We have a topic this evening that is along the same lines that uh, Sean spoke about this morning. Uh, it's in the, in the same series of the, the assembly that has been talked about a number of times. You know, from time to time I've been asked, uh, why does the Church of Christ believe that you need to be at church all the time, every time, every time the doors are open? And then they'll make some comment along the lines of, you know that you don't have to be at church to worship or be a Christian. And I guess technically that's true. I mean, we know that uh, in Revelations, the Apostle John said that he was, uh, as he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he was pretty much alone or at the very most uh, some people were guarding him there, but that wasn't his choice. Does anybody think that if John had had a choice, that he wouldn't have been in a congregation of the church on the Lord's Day? You know, Peter and Paul both sometime were uh, in prison. They were in prison on the Lord's Day. You know, that choice was taken away from them. But do we believe that they wouldn't have been, chose to be in a congregation of the church with like-minded Christians on the Lord's Day had they had a choice? So when we think about being in a church service, uh, we ask the question, you know, what, what's, the, what's the big deal? Why do you assemble together? Why is it important to assemble together? And I suppose the quick answer is because uh, God expects it. And he has set things in order to attain that end or to, to achieve that. I suppose the more complex and more in-depth answer would be because it's good for us. And anything that's good for us, good for our souls, is important. Now, as with the case of John as he was exiled on Patmos and Paul and Peter as they were in prison, I'm not talking about times that you physically can't be at the services. I'm not talking about times when it's out of your control. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're otherwise shut in. And it's just not possible. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about at times when you make the choice, I would rather do something else, be somewhere else, doing something else, than be in the service of the church together with like-minded Christians. When you make the choice to separate yourself or someone else tries to separate you, now, in the past year, uh, there have been significant forces at work to separate us one from another in many ways. And you know, this is not the first time that it happened, it's happened to, to God's people or people in general. Uh, and if the Lord delays His coming, it won't be the last time it happens. In fact, I suppose you could argue that there's been an effort to separate Christians are God's people from one another since the, since the creation. Satan was the first one to begin to try to, to separate people. Why? Well, it's easier to control, intimidate. It's easier to convince someone that is alone to change their belief than it is a group of people that 
encourage one another and support one another in a particular belief. Now, whether you want to blame this on the government or other institutions or, or just mankind in general, I, I really don't care. It doesn't matter to me who you want to blame it on because at the root of the effort to divide God's people, you're going to find Satan. He's the mastermind of trying to separate us. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and 24, And let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to good works. What better reason could people have for being around each other than the fact it provokes you to love and to good works? What, what else is there? What, what's more important than that? But we read this scripture, and then do we really think that the very next scripture, the Bible is talking about a completely different subject? When it says... Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. When do we most commonly provoke one another to love and to good works? When do we exhort one another? When do we speak things that encourages one another? When do we most commonly say, say things that help one another grow? In the assembly. When we're together. That's the most common time. You see, the idea of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is right along with the idea of doing the most important work of provoking one another to love and to good works. <clears throat> you know, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he was concerned about certain conduct that the Christians at Corinth were involved in when they were assembling together. Now the fault that he found wasn't in the fact that they were assembling together. It's what they were doing when they were assembling together. You see, they were correct in the fact that they were assembling together. But Paul's instruction to the congregation in Corinth on that topic is, is also instructive for us today. It's just as instructive for us today. There are three passages in 1 Corinthians which I think together shows that the Lord requires Christians to assemble every Sunday together and to participate in worship in three distinct ways. Now there may be other things that are involved in those as well, but there are three things that are very specific. And 1 Corinthians talks about these things. They are the Lord's Supper, and then in our vocal worship, which would involve prayer, singing, teaching, as Sean talked about this morning. And then also in the collection for the saints. And we'll talk about this for just a few moments. The Corinthian Christians were in the habit of, of gather, assembling together into one place. And Paul makes this plain when he, when he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11, and, uh, verse 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, here's the time, here's what's happening, you're coming together in the church... He says, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. So Paul talks about them coming together in the church, and then we got issues, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 1 Corinthians 14 and 23, Paul also says, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that you're mad? So again, ignore the part about the the uh, speaking with tongues and the unbelievers 
and the unlearned focus for just a second on when this happens or how it happens. He says, when the whole church, ecclesia, when the whole church comes together into one place, not separately, but into one place. They're all together into one place. Now, unfortunately, at this time, the Corinthians weren't conducting themselves as they should. And Paul had to admonish them accordingly. And in that teaching, Paul showed them the proper way of conducting themselves while they're in these assemblies. He showed them the proper way of conducting themselves with regard to the Lord's Supper, with regard to prayer, with regard to singing, with regard to teaching, and with regard to giving as well. And this is a general application, I guess, as Ty and Sean likes to say, an overarching principle. Although Paul is writing to the Corinthians Christians about their assembly in particular and problems with that assembly, his teaching can be applied to any church assembly today, any place, any time that Christians are gathered together for the purposes of worship. Of course, we don't necessarily imitate the culture of those people at that time. We don't imitate their customs necessarily. Hopefully we don't imitate their errors. We've got our own problems we need to deal with. But we should value and follow Paul's inspired ideal of a faithful congregation and that ideal is reflected in his teachings. And it's a model for us to consider today. For example, and we're going to look at this in more detail in a few moments, but when Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and 10, there should be no divisions among you, shouldn't that be a pattern for all congregations? No divisions at all, any time. Even though Paul teaches the Corinthians about division in a personal and specific way, it's a model for us today. It's a general principle of there being no divisions among the churches today. And what Paul ordered the Corinthians to do, all Christian assemblies should imitate in principle. By comparing scripture, we can let the word of God show us the model of an ideal behavior for any church assembly today. And I, I think this can be demonstrated in three specific passages that we'll look at in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Of course, there are other scriptures, but, but we'll keep it simple uh, and just look at these three for just a few moments. <clears throat> in fact, these are scriptures that in this series of studies about the assembly, you've already heard over and over and over again. And probably we'll hear them more. The first being concerning the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 22. Paul writes, Now in this I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before his own... Uh, for in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? 
What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Now the rest of this chapter speaks to how they should do it. How they should be observing the Lord's Supper. So we don't need to make a, a lot of comment on this. But it shows that the Christians were in the habit of assembling together. And at that assembly of the church they were to partake of the Lord's Supper. In a proper manner. Which they weren't doing. Now concerning vocal worship. In 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit. And I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit. And I will sing with the understanding also. So praying and singing are both acts of vocal worship. And they're to be done in the proper spirit. With the proper understanding. And they're to be done together. When we're in the assembly of the, of, of the church. Now certainly you can sing and you can pray outside the assembly. But when it is in an assembly, it's to be done together. It's to be done as one by everyone. Now notice in 1 Corinthians 14, 23 through 25. This is just a little further down in that chapter. So it still pertains to the act of praying and singing within the assembly. The Bible says there, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with the tongues, and there come in the, those that are unlearned and un, or unbelievers, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one, that, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. Now in this, this example of assembly, we... We see, uh, we see speaking. Brother Sean talked in detail about this this morning. That's teaching. It, it talks there in the 24th verse about prophesying. Another form of teaching. Another form of vocal worship. So we have singing and praying. We have speaking, which in this case was speaking in tongues. But it could be speaking in just a teaching manner. And we have prophesying, another form of teaching. All done together, all done in the assembly. All done were, in other words, were uh, no one would be left out. Men, women, children, everyone hears, everyone learns. Everyone is profited. Now notice that even if an unbelieving visitor comes in, notice what happens in verse 25. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. So we see the effect even on one who may be an unbeliever. This entire chapter is about the proper use of, of spiritual gifts, as Sean talked about this morning, the proper conduct of speakers, the proper conduct of teachers in the assembly. And in, in this passage, Paul deals with the matter of speaking in the assembling, whether it be praying or singing or teaching, that is to be done together. He urges that all speaking be done in an orderly manner, according to certain rules, as Sean talked about this morning, and especially so that the hearers can understand and be edified. That's, that's the need. That's the bottom line. The rule requiring orderly and understandable speaking in the assembly is, is applicable to any congregation, any assembly, 
anywhere, anytime, not just the congregation at Corinth, but anyone. And it should be the model for any church. Now observe also what Paul says in verse 37 as he winds this chapter down. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. It's the word of God. It's what we should be following. It's what we should be teaching. It's what's necessary for us to learn one from another. And this, this applies, implies that anyone who speaks from Paul's writing, anyone who speaks from 1 Corinthians or any other scripture, is representing and, and is representing and applying them in a proper manner, is speaking the word of the Lord. Just like they were in that day. Now we may not be inspired, as, as Sean said this morning, but when we are using those same words and we're applying them accurately and in the same manner, then we're speaking the word of God just as they were in that day. It's always together. Always. In an assembly, it's always done together. Now, concerning the contribution, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. I'm going to stop right there. <clears throat> you know, many today will deny that these pass this passage has any uh, reference to Christians assembling together in one place at one time. I disagree. I want you to notice two key phrases we've seen in 1 Corinthians 14. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and then in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2, upon the first day of the week. Now you can't always stick two scriptures together because sometimes it doesn't make any, any sense. But in this case it does. So I want you to see that this, what these two scriptures placed together could be understood as. <clears throat> if therefore the whole church be come together into one place upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Does that misrepresent what God has told us in those two scriptures? You see, the collection for the saints is to be done in an assembly together, just like teaching, praying, singing, just like observing the Lord's Supper. It's all to be done in an assembly together. <clears throat> now I want to I move to a different, little different thought process, and I want you to consider a scripture that you might think has nothing to do with worshiping together, but just bear with me for, for a few moments, and I think this will make sense. It does to me anyway. The Bible writes in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, 
with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. A very lengthy reading, but it parallels the relationship between a husband and wife and Christ and the church. And a husband should have a very similar relationship to a wife and a wife to a husband that the church does to Christ and Christ does to the church. Notice what, uh, what verse 32 says. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. That's the principle. The relationship between Christ and the church is the, is the principle. And it parallels with that of a husband and wife. So let's, let's think about something here for a moment. When would it be okay for the husband to say, I'm not going to do the husband thing today. I'm tired. I'm run down. I need a break. I need to knock the edge off a little bit. I'm, I'm taking the day off. I need a day just to think about me. When would that be okay? When would it be okay for the wife to say, I'm not going to wife today. Can't do it. I need to be alone or I need to be around some friends that will, will uh, encourage me and, and pick me up. I'm just not going to be the wife today. Now, we may, we may I'm not saying we don't need a day off once in a while, but to put that in front of the needs of a husband or wife, that's not a good attitude. That's not a good thing. That wouldn't be looked on as, as very profitable. To illustrate, let's look at it this way. According to the reading in Ephesians 5, when would it be okay to you, as members of the church, if Christ said, I don't want to be your Lord today. I, I don't want to do it today. I'm just not up for it. Maybe next week, not this week. I just got too much going on right now. As members of his body, you wouldn't think that's real good, would you? I mean, that, that doesn't exhibit the love that Jesus says he has toward us. So let me ask you this. When is it okay for the bride of Christ, the church, all of us, each and every one of us, to take that approach and say, not today. I don't want to do it today. I want to do something else. We are members of his body. We're members of his flesh. We're bone of his bone. We need to be around each other. We need, need our brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to approach God and worship. You need to teach your children that they need to approach God and worship. They need to be nurtured and admit, admonished that, to be shown that they need God, that they need worship as well. And in do, so doing, you teach them that they're not alone. You're not alone. We're not alone. We're in this together. 
So what is the opposite of together? Somebody says, well, apart. Okay, yeah. But if you're not together, what are you? You're separate. You're divided. And the Bible has quite a bit to say about being divided. In Romans, the 16th chapter, in the 17th verse, the Bible says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. You know, sometimes divisions are caused by others. And Paul did not look on these people with a great deal of approval. He said, mark them and avoid them. That's pretty strong language. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. The Bible says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you that saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here we see that Paul writes extensively about divisions at the church in Corinth. More problems. And he warns against these divisions. The ones that have occurred and the ones that are about to occur. And he goes on to describe these divisions to some degree by inserting himself and Apollos and Peter in the context of being the the heads of these divisions. Today, maybe we might say, well, uh, I'm going to follow Brother Beverly, what he he says. I'm going to follow Brother Zane. I'm going to follow Brother David. That's how Paul put it. There were divisions. There were people that were actually doing this. Now, I don't think they were necessarily following Paul and Apollos and Peter, but they were following other men, and they were making those men the object of their worship. And Paul says to these people, says, was Paul crucified for you? Nope. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Christ is not divided. And we shouldn't divide either in any circumstance. God does not like divisions. 1 Corinthians 3 and 3. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Here in Corinthians, Paul says that Envying and strife and divisions come from the fleshly side of man, not the spiritual side of man. He says if there's envying and strife and divisions, you're walking like men and you're not walking like Christians. Because there is to be no divisions concerning Christians. Going back to Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in the 18th verse, Paul writes, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, and they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
For in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat in, eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. We used this passage earlier to illustrate that we're to be together when partaking of the Lord's Supper. Now I want you to notice that at Corinth there were divisions among these folks. Some of them they were being selfish and they weren't seeing to the needs of others. And Paul asked, said, well, should I praise you for this? You'll get no praise from me. Divisions were occurring, and it was not a good thing. You know, I suppose for many years when, when, there was, uh, when the Bible speaks against divisions, I thought that that was spiritual divisions, doctrinal divisions. And certainly that, that is part of it. And, and certainly we should always be on guard against those things. But as I consider the scriptures that we just talked about, the scriptures that we just read, I, I, I believe God opposes any division. Spiritual, mental, physical, any division whatsoever. I think, I think God opposes it. We see physical divisions all the time in the church. Children are separated from parents. Older people are separated from teenagers. Married people are separated from single people. Older married couples are separated from younger married couples. Why is this? Why do we do this? Some would say, well, we're trying to give each group what they need to learn and to grow. But do you know what it really does? Have you thought about the consequences of what it really does? It may cause children to wonder, why are my parents not teaching me these things? Why are they having someone else teach me? Why aren't they overseeing what is being taught to me? You ever thought about that? Teenagers come to believe that older people are a bunch of bullies. that don't want them to do anything for themselves. Older people begin to believe that teenagers are a bunch of thugs and they'll never amount to anything. They won't listen. Single people believe all married people want them to do is hurry up and get married and have children. That's all they want them to do. Married people think all single people want to do is sow wild oats and not have any commitments. That's all they're worth. Young married couples think older married couples believe that the young married couples are doing it all wrong. And their marriage will never last. Older married couples believe the young married couples have no respect or reverence for marriage and the effort it takes to keep a marriage alive. This is what divisions cause. This is the thought process. None of it's true. Not a single one of it's true. But when we divide and we separate ourselves, that's what we begin to believe. We begin to believe things that are not true. What the older folks really want is to save the younger people from some heartache that they've had to endure in their life. They don't want you to have to go through that. What the younger folks really want is for the older folks to understand that things are different in the world today and I have to overcome obstacles. I have to deal with things that you never had to deal with. That's very true. 
That is all very true. And when we're together, when we spend time together, when we talk together, when we study together, when we reason together, we understand this. There are no hidden things. Everything is out and open. And we begin to understand what God expects from us more perfectly. <clears throat> Have you not seen the toll being forced into separation has taken on us in the last year? Now, I don't do politics, especially in an assembly of the church, but there is a list out there. It's a, it's a one-page list, and the, the title of that list is Rules for radicals. That's what the title of it is. And one of those rules on that list is divide the people by class. It's a rule for radicals to divide the people by class. And then this, on this same list, it clearly states that the goal is this will cause discontent. And we'll call discontent. Knowing this, why would we want to allow divisions among us? Knowing that communication will prevent many, if not all, of those misconceptions. Romans 12 and 10 says, Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. If we prefer one another, why wouldn't you want to be together? Why wouldn't you want to be together a lot? Why wouldn't you want to be together at every opportunity you had, as much as possible? Recently, just like in the last year or so, uh, there's a church Christ down in South Texas. It's the largest church Christ in the nation of what was considered a cappella Church of Christ. In other words, Churches of Christ that don't have instrumental music. Churches of Christ that have vocal singing that Brother Zane talked to us here a few weeks ago about. This Church of Christ, just recently in the last year, has decided to add instrumental music. In a service, not on Sunday, on Saturday night. And also, they're going to have communion on Saturday night. They're going to have a completely separate service that includes instrumental music and the Lord's Supper on Saturday night. My question is, are they together? Or are they divided? Seems to me you choose what you want to do. How you want to worship. Instead of following God's command, so I ask you a question. How long before these two assemblies, the one on Saturday night and the one on Sunday, start picking at each other and start backbiting each other? We'll see. It's yet to be determined. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, whether this was always, always an assembly of the church 
or not, I, I don't know. But what I do know is fellowship, being together, was involved. You can't have fellowship if you're not together. It's impossible. Notice a couple of verses later, verse 44, and all that believed were together and had all things in common. They were together. Now, I'm not suggesting we go back to a time of having all things in common. But what I am suggesting is that we need to be together. Often, we need to be together physically, emotionally, spiritually. I want you to consider one more scripture. I kind of threw this one in there on the spur of the moment. It, it, I just found it interesting. Uh, Colossians 4 and 16. <clears throat> Paul writes to the Colossians here. And he says, and when this epistle is read among you, what epistle? The epistle of the Colossians. When was it read among them? In the assembly of the church. And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. Now it doesn't say, but it's inferred that you read the epistle of the Laodiceans to the church at Colossae. Now why do you suppose that Paul told the church here at Colossae to read Colossians, the epistle of Colossians among them? In other words, in an assembly of the church? Not only that, why, why do you suppose he told the Colossians to cause the epistle of Colossians to be read among the Laodiceans. In other words, to give the Laodiceans the opportunity, the chance to read the epistle of the Colossians. Not only that, but why read the epistle of the Laodiceans among the church at Colossae? Among the church, together, in a together arrangement. You think it might have been important? You think it might have been important that they hear these things together at the same time. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. When is a proper time to remove children from their parents' oversight for the purpose of teaching them? At what age do you do that? Where's the authority? Can you find me a scripture that, that tells me how to do that? When should any of us separate to ourselves and only consider what we want, what we think? Where's the authority to do that? When could any group separate and discuss what that group wants to discuss? Where's the authority to do that? You know, there's an old saying, and I don't know who it's attributed to, but it says more hands make less work. That's, there's a lot of common sense in that, in that quote, in that phrase. I would just add that more eyes watching and more ears listening cause less mistakes. I believe instead of seeking ways to divide ourselves or separate ourselves, especially in the assembly, but really any time, you know, we should, we should be seeking ways to be together more. As they say, there's safety in numbers. 
There's safety for us in numbers as well. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.